0: Mm. This episode of Juice Guru Radio is brought to you by Try Best, Making Healthy Living Easy, and Juice Guru Academy, our insiders club at juiceguruacademy.com.
1: Welcome Welcome. Welcome to Juice Guru Radio. Discover what the magic and power of juicing can do for you. And now, your host, best-selling author of The Complete Idiot's Guide to Juice Fasting. Steve brusack
0: Hello and welcome. Welcome to another edition of Juice Guru Radio. On today's show, we've got a very interesting topic on defending privacy in a networked world, how our rights are being invaded, what we need to do about that. You're going to find all about it with our guest, Rainy Wrightman. She'll be here right after this. So stay tuned for a very special edition of Juice Guru Radio. Here's another Juice Guru approved product. Hey there, Juice Guru tribe. Here at Juice Guru, we've tried a lot of juicers. Pretty much just about every juicer on the market, in fact. But the one we've chosen as our absolute favorite for the last three years in a row has been the Try Best Slow Star. Order your own at the Juice Guru Tribe discount by visiting our website at juiceguru.com. Try Best Slow Star makes healthy living easy. Get one today. Juice Guru Radio. Hello and welcome back. Welcome back to Juice Crew Radio. I'm your host, Steve. And today we've got Rainy Reitman. Uh, She's going to really open our eyes to what's going on with privacy and what's going on on the internet and how we are being uh, invaded. She is the director of the activism team at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. That's www.eff.org. We'll have a link to that at juicecrewradio.com. Let's welcome to the show right now, Rainy Reitman.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Rainey, thank you for being here and for all the great work you're doing in spreading this information. Because a lot of us aren't, are a little in the dark about what's going on. So, can you, first of all, tell us how you got involved in this?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I uh, years ago, I lived in San Diego, and I, I started out. One of my first jobs was at a small nonprofit organization that did consumer privacy rights, and I was just so compelled by this issue. They dealt with everything from medical privacy to Uh, Credit reporting to data brokers and then from there I really started looking at the connection between how companies collect data on people and that ending up uh, being a resource for government agencies. Uh, And how that relationship has developed as technology has grown in our lives. So I've really sort of moved towards more digital issues and towards especially relationships between companies and the government. Uh, It's it's become a a fascinating and, and lifelong passion of mine to sort of work on privacy issues.
0: Yeah, and I think getting it into, you know, I think people need to be aware of what's going on. So, uh, what first of all, what's going on with social media and the internet right now? Because I think it's at a level that's kind of unprecedented, isn't that right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are literally... Billions of people using social networking sites and especially using Facebook, when we think about people's Internet experience, many of them are experiencing the Internet like millions of people are basically experiencing the World Wide Web through a Facebook interface. Um, This is how people are finding out information and keeping contact, even with their closest friends and what many people don't think about is This is a corporation that has a a corporate agenda that is not actually considering you its clients. Its clients are its advertisers, and you, uh, you're not paying anything for this service except your own data, which you're contributing to Facebook and similar platforms. And so you have this sort of monolithic entity that's doing this amazing amount of collection on people uh, that people are using because it seems like a useful service, but many people just aren't thinking about, it. well, what are the long-term consequences of having all of my information put into this uh, into this? social networking site, and then I've lost control over it. Um, I think many people don't think about issues like how will this data get deleted or who else might have access to it, things like that.
0: It's interesting if we rewind the tape because this is all relatively new. When we think about the first iPhone came out in 2005 and, you know, we had MySpace and things like that, um, and then Facebook came along innocently enough, you would think. I mean, it, it, have we evolved into this as 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 these uh, businesses became bigger?
1: Well, I think there are changes when businesses become bigger, not because size is necessarily a bad thing, but because uh, all of our uh, public interactions start gravitating towards just a handful of communities, Facebook or Twitter. And what happens then is that, Those companies have an incredible amount of power to set the defaults. What will the defaults for privacy be? What will the defaults for uh, free speech be? What will the defaults for... Um, uh, how they disseminate information be. And whatever their default standards are, that's going to be what most people just accept because many people, they're not going to go through their Facebook settings and and look through and and try to make adjustments to have a more protective privacy experience. They're just going to take whatever Facebook has set as the default. And so you're putting a lot of control and power into just a handful of companies. So I think that's the real problem when you move towards just having one or two or three big companies Companies controlling so much information is there isn't like a more privacy protective uh, version that people are headed towards because everybody's on the same social network. And so you don't want to leave your friends. You want to stay where they are. So you end up just taking whatever it is that that company is offering, which is often not the most privacy protective option.
0: Right. And isn't it true that organizations like Facebook and other social media, a lot of money is spent on keeping people addicted and hooked?
1: You know, the it certainly is the case that they've optimized their services to be very sticky, to be the kind of thing you don't want to turn off. And they're able to do that because they're collecting so much information on people. They know how long you've loaded a page. They know when you click on an image. They know when you share it with somebody. And so they can optimize their experience to move uh, users towards things that they're most likely to continuously stay engaged with. And so they're using you know, basic, you know, math and science to uh, create a user experience that keeps you really glued and engaged to that set, which isn't necessarily terrible at all. Um, It just, it does mean that we end up having much longer exposure to these, uh, these online platforms, and then uh, as a result, often give them more information.
0: You're listening to Rainy Reitman on Juice Crew Radio, a uh, topic of defending privacy in a network world. And we'll have more about her website and what they're doing over at Electronic Frontier Foundation. That's the best way to get a hold of the information you guys are doing at EFF.org. Right, Rainy? Yep,
1: that's right. EFF.org.
0: Yeah, we'll have a link to that at Juice Crew Radio so you can check it out. It's, it's really an amazing resource. And, um, Rainy, so what do we mean when we're talking about digital privacy?
1: Hmm. When I think about digital privacy, I really think that it comes down to are we going to have future worlds where we have unobserved spaces, where you have the ability to uh, explore information or explore your own ideas and thoughts or communicate with somebody and know that that information is totally private. We have this in the non-networked world. Like you and I could go, we could meet at a coffee shop, we could just sit down over coffee or juice, and we could, we could talk about... Um, issues, whether they were political or controversial or very intimate and personal issues, and know that the only person who would know about it is you. I could write things in my journal and it would have the same effect. It would be a place I could explore things and not have a a a permanent trail of that. But as we've moved into a digital world, that really comes into question because people, especially young kids, as they're growing up in our society, their default is to put it on a third-party service as something you're not controlling and uh, to communicate through apps and through social media and to create these indelible prints of even, even ideas they were just exploring or thinking about or information they were just curious about. And that becomes this data trail that becomes uh, very difficult to really even comprehend for most people. So when we think about digital privacy, we think about how can we find that same core concept of protecting our ideas and thoughts and relationships and letting them exist in an impermanent uh, private way, just like we had them in the physical world.
0: Now, this information that's being gathered about everyone, pretty much. I mean, through through cell phones too, right? Wasn't there something about the cell phones that that there's um that they're able to actually view even through our our the lens of our camera, we can actually be viewed. Is that true? Is there any true? And actually, I heard through uh, TV sets too. Through smart TVs, we can actually there is a form of surveillance there. Does any of your work focus on that?
1: I think that um, what everyone needs to think about is when you've got a piece of technology that's running software and it's connected to the internet in some sense, and new televisions definitely are, uh, that's something that could get hacked. It's something that a malicious hacker could gain access to, could put malware into, and could turn into a surveillance device. It's also the type of technology that could be, that the the company itself that is running that technology could be gathering information on you and then using for other purposes, maybe for marketing purposes, or maybe as a, a set of information that could eventually become available to the government. And so most of us, unfortunately are not reading the full privacy policies of all of these technologies that we're using. But even if you were, even if you studiously reviewed every privacy policy before you engaged in a new service, it wouldn't matter that much because that privacy policy could change after you signed up for it. So you're really mm-hmm. at a very big disadvantage. And so one, uh, one thing that a lot of people do, uh, is they just put a sticker over their laptop cameras or over their cell phone cameras, and uh, and they and that gives them a measure of of security. A lot of other people very much recommend keep your apps up to date, install your security updates, make sure that your computer is patched so that when your software services find out about vulnerabilities, uh, you're updating it as quickly as possible and and really minimizing the chances of your security being. Uh, basically infringed on by malicious hackers.
0: What are some of the other ways we can uh, be more secure and, and, and elicit a sense of privacy online?
1: Sure, so I, I really think about it as mindfulness in the same way we practice mindfulness in other ways of our lives, in other forms, in other ways in our life, which is just start being aware, you know, be aware of the types of apps that you're putting on your phone, aware of the websites that you're visiting, Um, You can use ad blockers um, or you can use privacy protective tools uh, that you add on to your browser. For example, we have one that EFF creates a couple of totally free tools that are just available to the world as a nonprofit. We give away lots of free services and free, um, free tools to the world. And we have one called Privacy Badger that helps protect you from tracking when you move around the web. So you could check out Privacy Badger, but there's lots of additional tools like that that have similar functions, and they just block trackers when you're going from website to website to help better protect your privacy. Uh, and then I also suggest you just um, you could sign up for information from EFF.org and learn more about sort of privacy in general. And then be aware whenever you're on an online form, no matter what it is, if you're typing in information about yourself, just stop for a moment and ask yourself who's getting this information. Am I okay with them having it forever? Uh, do I know how it's going to be used or who it might be shared with? And, you know, if it is used in a way I'm not expecting, how is that going to make me feel? And that goes for photographs. And it also goes for um, location information. That can be incredibly sensitive if you're checking into someplace on Facebook. Remember, you're broadcasting to the world that you're not at home right now. And, um it also goes for everything like, you know, your social security number or your password or anything like that. You just got to do a, do a little check and be like, is this really a trustworthy source? And do I actually want to be sharing this information? Is there a way I could share a little bit less? And that in itself can be pretty powerful.
0: I mean, does that apply to online shopping too? You hear about credit card fraud all the time. I, I think my card's been hacked a few times. Usually the companies are pretty good about, you know, resolving any funds that I didn't spend, but I've been through that of having to get a new card that there's been compromise. Uh, Is there any way to avoid that? And is that, do you you foresee, will that be an ongoing issue?
1: Unfortunately, I do think it's gonna be an ongoing issue. We have laws that protect consumers uh, when their uh, credit cards and debit cards are misused. If you are doing any kind of shopping and you're using these credit cards or debit cards, You need to be going through your statements and your online bank account with a fine-tooth comb and looking for things that are uh, inaccurate and reporting it quickly, getting a new card issued. It is just unfortunately the case that we just can't rely on the uh, merchants that we do business with to truly hold our data uh, safe, which uh, which is frustrating because we want to be able to use uh, you know we want to buy things online it's convenient and people like it. You can get access to things that might not be available in your local store. so um, So I would recommend people search through their um, their uh, bank accounts for fraudulent things and then also remember that you do have rights. If people are misusing your cards, you can actually uh, go to your bank and they should refund you. Uh, you especially have rights around um, credit card misuse. Uh, You have stronger rights around a credit card than you do around a debit card. I know there are many people who don't like credit cards for a whole range of reasons, but just remember that when it comes to refunds on fraudulent data, on fraudulent purchases, credit cards put you in a, a slightly stronger position.
0: Now, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, can you talk a little more about them and what they're doing to fight for our rights?
1: Sure. So the Electronic Frontier Foundation, I've been here for seven years, but they were actually founded back in 1990, so at the very earliest ages of the Internet. And they're a civil liberties organization, so they work on issues like free speech, privacy. We work on, um, you know, all sorts of issues that one think of as traditional, you know, uh, First Amendment and Fourth Amendment issues. But we really work on new technology. So how has uh, everything from the interconnected home to self-driving cars to cell phones to GPS to you know, the internet, how has that changed and impacted our constitutional rights? Uh, We work, uh, we have a legal team, uh, which is like 15 lawyers who, and they actually engage in impact litigation. They take things up. They have gone all the way to the Supreme Court to fight for uh, constitutional rights and new technology. And then I run the advocacy team, which is a team of about 10 that, uh, That works to educate people about not just privacy, but free speech and related issues and new technology. And then we also have a big technology team and they make free tools like uh, add-ons, including Privacy Badger, which I just mentioned. Uh, And then they also help us maintain our website, which is uh, EFF.org.
0: Awesome. And, I you know, you're also involved in the Freedom of the Press Foundation. So, has it been uh, a lot of your work about, you know, getting truth out there? And another thing i had heard recently was uh, Stephen Hawkins had mentioned about 90% of the information out there on the internet. Anyone, everyone has a smartphone now. They can kind of create their own blog and put whatever. So, a lot of people that maybe didn't have a voice at one time are now having a voice on the internet. And, how dangerous that actually is and how much false information there is out there. What do you have to say to that? And, you know, overall getting the truth out over some of the, the the fake accounts that are out there.
1: Mm -hmm. So freedom of the press foundation is a wonderful nonprofit that I'm also associated with. um, And they really help support uh, investigative journalism Uh, You know, as we move into a more digital world, many of the existing newspapers have been very challenged to do the kind of in-depth, powerful investigative journalism, and so Freedom of the Press Foundation has supported really cutting-edge investigative journalism, and they've also started doing security training so that uh, uh, journalists can have more secure mechanisms of speaking with their sources and, uh, and they've begun doing advocacy as well. It's a relatively young organization. It's just a couple years old. And they, uh, they do advocacy to fight for press freedom in the digital world. And that Stephen Hawking question is interesting. I understand what, what his concern is. It's like, well, what if we're not getting our news from reliable journalists who went through journalism school? It's just from anybody on the Internet, and you don't really know who published it. Can you rely on it? And I understand that. I think at the end of the day, I... I like the idea that the Internet is something anybody can contribute to and anybody can get their ideals out on. It means that, you know, if you look at traditional newspapers, like big, you know, newspapers, they're run by these huge uh, massive corporations. And they, they pick and choose their stories. Local ma- stories that impact your neighborhood, maybe they're not going to end up at the Washington Post or the New York Times. Um, and if you're not getting interviewed for the stories, your views aren't going to be there. And so I have loved the blog revolution. I think it has helped so many people have a voice. It also means that you have to be super skeptical and careful about what you read online because... Um, You never really know who the source is unless you do uh, some due diligence.
0: Yeah, but it's also provided a platform for people with another agenda, hateful messages and things like that, giving a bigger platform to some of those things too.
1: Yeah, it's one of the things that the internet is really grappling with is, you know, even as we have so many communities that are coming together, you know, I look at, you know, one of my favorite communities is this wonderful uh, community of women who are speaking out about online harassment uh, through uh, an app that's been created that gives them a voice in a community to document what's happening to them and and speak out about it. And at the same time, you've got terrible groups that are, are spreading messages of hate and cruelty and inciting just really hateful movements. Um, and so I think we need to think really carefully about how we approach those issues. Uh, I'm worried that, you, unfortunately, it's impossible to write a law that censors the internet and doesn't end up taking off some of the things that we would want to. So we have to. It's been it's been a battle throughout. American history? How do we defend our First Amendment values while also noting that some of these people are, are really literally awful people?
0: Well, that's true. I mean, and, and it comes down to the same thing with network TV and the news programs and cable. Uh, and, you know, it is bought and sold by bigger companies. And so I think worse than ever now, the the, yeah. the lack of information or truth that comes through the the channels. Isn't that right?
1: I think that's, that's a huge problem. And I think that uh, That's why I'm so proud to support hard-hitting investigative journalism through organizations like Freedom of the Press Foundation, where we really try to get powerful, serious investigative journalism back into circulation and supported.
0: And uh, anything else around this topic that we didn't touch on that you want to share with our listeners? Um, Anything that uh, we need to shed more light on that people might not be aware of?
1: Well, I guess another... You know, just super simple tip that I think people should think about is um, many people, like my parents were guilty of this for years, and I think I finally talked them out of it, they um, they use the same password on many different websites, and that's a super dangerous thing to do, because if even one of those websites is compromised, uh, that password that you put in, they're going to use that to try to get into all sorts of different accounts, right, and so uh, it can also be very overwhelming to keep a, a list of every single different password. However, there are password managers which are just, you know, really uh, strong password vaults where you can keep a huge list of all your passwords, and then you just have one incredibly complicated, unique password that you use to get into that password vault. Or you could even just keep them in a list by your, by your, uh, by your laptop if you're you know, not too worried about it. But what I would really caution people is, please, please, please don't reuse your passwords.
0: Oh, great tip. Last pass is my favorite. Um, And... Rainey, your plans, any other projects or uh, your plans for the future as far as activism, your career, where you plan to take all this?
1: Yeah, so we're in a massive fight right now um, with the uh, – in Congress, we are fighting for surveillance of the National Security Agency. Congress has to vote on it by the end of the year because a key uh, authority called Section 702 – uh, which uh, is the legal, you know, authorization for a lot of the NSA surveillance of the Internet set to expire. And so we're working to try to get some reforms to try to rein in uh, mass surveillance of the Internet by the National Security Agency. So that's what I'm busy on. I've got a ton of information on EFF.org. But that, I mean, it's about October now, and that'll keep us busy right through the end of the year. And it, it could go up right to the very last day of the year. Sometimes they'll vote on it, you know, two days before the end of the year. So those are my holiday plans.
0: Great, great. Well, you're doing amazing work. Thank you for coming on here and spreading the message, the work the EFF is doing and, you know, helping people to wake up to what's actually being done behind the scenes. Thank you for being on the show today.
1: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.
0: That's Rainey Wrightman right here on Jusper Radio. I'm Steve Prusak, and we'll see you next time.
1: Thank you for listening to Juice Guru Radio. Find out more about us at juiceguru.com. Until next time, get your juice on.